0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. How's everyone doing today? You excited to start a new book this morning? All right, we're going to be jumping into the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. For those of you who don't know, it's in the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you'll get there. And we're going to be here uh, all the way to Advent season. So I'm pretty excited to jump into this book together. And uh, as we jump into it, really, there's this beautiful focus in the book of Colossians, um, really, really similar to Hebrews, actually. And I was really debating whether to do this one because there's a lot of similarity to Hebrews. And as we studied Hebrews, what did we call Jesus through that series? The, The greatest of all time, right? And it was a heavy focus on Jesus. And Colossians is very similar. Colossians is basically this book that looks at Jesus as the forefront and focus of everything we are and everything we do. And so we're going to be jumping into this book. Now, the the book of Colossians is called an epistle. Who knows what an epistle is? It's a fancy way of saying a letter, right? And does anyone know who wrote this letter? Paul. Paul. And so when we went through the book of Acts, we saw that Paul was a missionary He planted a bunch of churches in all these different places, and we see him uh, imprisoned in house arrest in the city of Ephesus. And this is most likely the place where he wrote this letter from, and he wrote it to the church in Colossae. And what's beautiful about the, the church of Colossae is it wasn't actually one that Paul planted. It was actually planted um, by another man who we're going to read about in the letter, who was uh, someone who come to faith through the, the ministry of Paul and ended up traveling back to Colossae from Ephesus to plant this church in the city of Colossae. And what's beautiful is we see this church grow and flourish and come into fruition. And so Paul writes a letter to them because he gets this report that they're going through some struggles. They're getting sidetracked. They're getting distracted from the gospel that was spoken to them, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I want to just jump straight into the letter because there's a lot for us to go through. And so let's just turn to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at a, a few verses to begin with and then work through this together. And so Colossians, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, starts like this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And so he's writing the letter to the church and he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father. That's his introduction. And so he's writing, just as Monica mentioned, because he loves this church, he cares about this church, he wants them to experience the grace that God has for them, and the peace that comes from knowing that grace. And then he goes on to say this, verse 3, he says, "'We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus,' And of the love that you have for all the saints, because the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so this is the context in which Paul is writing us church to. Now, I want us just to imagine why why is Paul writing the letter to the church in Colossae at this time? Well, I want us to do a little word picture in our mind right now. Uh, I want us to imagine the picture of the church as a garden. Now, what's the most beautiful garden you've ever seen in your life? Anyone know? And you can't say your own. Well, some of you might be able to say oh. <laughs> yeah, your own. Yeah, buchar garden. I knew some of you would say All right. right? I'm an island boy. I grew up in Vancouver Island, so I had to say this, right? But Bouchard Garden to me is like one of those places that just blow your mind when you're walking around. There's just expanse of beauty and precision. And it's just this place where you feel um, everything's almost perfect. And there's all these beautiful colors and variety of flowers. And, and so I want for us to think of the Church of Colossae as this beautiful garden. And the reason I want us to think of this beautiful garden is because Paul says the gospel has been planted there. And what's grown up is this beautiful church. And this church is thriving and growing and maturing and it's becoming uh, fruitful. And so there's all these beautiful elements coming out of this church. And so when we think about a church that's, that's thriving, well, well, Paul uses this language of, of, of faith, hope, and love. That's just flourishing there. And and they have a church that they're they're faithful to what God has called them to because they realize that God himself is faithful to them. And so there's beautiful faithfulness to the mission of God that's going on. There's this beautiful hope that's growing among them because they see this this hope that God is restoring and reconciling all things to himself. So despite the hardship that they're going through, despite the suffering and persecution, they realize that there is hope for them. And then he says there's love flourishing among them. There's love for each other. There's love for God. There's love for creation. And so all these things of faith, hope, and love are flourishing because they had experienced and known the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so there's all these beautiful aspects going on. Now, as we think about this, Uh, What are some other things that we could think of 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 a beautiful reality coming out of the gospel in the life of God's people? What is the fruit of the gospel? What is the beauty that it produces? Just spelt some things out. Love, yeah. mentioned that with Paul, yeah? Yeah, charity, a generosity. Our God is a very generous God, so we become a generous people. Yeah, mercy. God is a merciful God, so we become a merciful people. Yeah, faithful. God has been faithful to us, so we're faithful to what He has called us to do. Yeah, grace. God is gracious to us, so we become a gracious people. Yeah, God is a, gives us hope, so we live out of that hope. Yeah, forgiveness. God forgives us, so we become a forgiving people. Joy. Yeah, God is the source of joy, so we become a joyous people despite all circumstances. And so they're, they're realizing that the more they know and experience God, the more it's transforming them. And the more they're becoming the people that their God has created them to be, and the more it's transforming the world around them. And so this is this beautiful um, reality of what the gospel produces. Uh, Paul is saying, you guys have come to know and understand the gospel, and it's bringing about this beautiful reality of what it means to be the people of God. And so what the gospel has done then, and we see in this context, is the gospel has changed them. It's changed their character. It's changed their actions. It's changed their mindset. Who here has been changed by the gospel? Amen? The gospel changes us. It transforms us. As we know God, we become more like Him. And so the gospel is changing them. It's transforming them. But we also see something else beautiful. Not only have the gospel transformed them, we see the gospel changing everything around them. And, and Paul says this language, he says, it's come to you, the gospel is coming to you, and indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. That's what the gospel does, it multiplies, it expands. And so it's, it's quite beautiful to think about this in the, the letter that Paul is writing, Because you think about the the growth of the early church when we put our minds back to the story of Acts, which Paul is living out. I mean, how many people do we read about um, in Acts chapter 1 who know Jesus at that time, who are gathered? About 120, right? And they pray, and the day of Pentecost comes, and then what happens? Thousands of people come to faith. And then as we read even through the history of the Roman Empire, what happens to the church despite persecution? It grows and grows and it's growing and it's expanding despite all odds. This movement of Jesus is just flourishing like insanity. And so by the time Paul's even writing this letter, about 30 years later, the gospel had spread through the entire Roman Empire. 3,000 come to faith in Pentecost, and soon the number was 5,000, and then it's thousands upon thousands and thousands. And by the fifth century in the Roman Empire, especially after Constantine, it became just basically the state religion of the empire. And even when we think about the gospel today, the gospel has spread through all over the world. Amen? Amen. Even we, we hear so much with our work in Iran, how much is going on there even. And one of the most uh, against-all-odds places in the world, we see the fastest-growing church. And, and so Paul, what's beautiful is he's celebrating the expanse of the gospel, and we still celebrate it today. And Jesus once said this in, in the Gospel of Mark. It records Jesus saying, the kingdom of God, as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. In other words, the seeds of the gospel is being spread throughout the world, and it's just growing and expanding beyond our comprehension. And so that's what's been happening for 2,000 years. That's what Paul is celebrating in the church here. That's what we're celebrating among us today. This is what's been happening for thousands of years. The gospel has changed us. The gospel is changing the world. And one day the gospel, Jesus, will completely renew and reconcile all things, and all things will be made new. Amen? That's the hope that we have in Jesus, and we are part of that movement. But here's the thing. Here's what the church in Colossae is experiencing right now. If they are a garden who has this beauty and intricacy and detail about beauty, what happens if there's no caretakers in Bouchard Garden? Yeah, what happens in your own garden if you're, you're not caring for it? Weeds grow, right? And when you have a beautiful flower garden and then you have a bunch of thorns and thistles and weeds, it sort of destroys the beauty, right? It destroys what it's supposed to be. And what the church in Colossae is facing right now is exactly this. They they have the beauty of the gospel growing in them, transforming them, transforming the world around them, and yet there's a threat of all these weeds threatening the church, threatening the church. And a garden will only stay in full bloom when it is intended and when weeds come to destroy the beauty. And so Here's the major reason that Paul is writing the letter right now. This is sort of the theme verse of the whole book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, 6 to 8. We're gonna get there in a few weeks, but I want to point it out now. Because Paul brings out something crucial here. He says, therefore. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, in other words, now that you recognize that Jesus is God, He's the creator and sustainer of all things, that He created you to be restored in relation to Him, He desires life to the fullest for you, this is what you need to do. He says, walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in what? Abounding thanksgiving, in other words, celebrating the gospel all the time. So Paul says, this, this is what you're called to, church. You're called to walk the path worthy that God has set out before you, rooted, there's another gardening cultivated language, right? Rooted in Him, established in the faith, established in thanksgiving. Because here's the threat that, see, that Paul sees. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. By philosophy, and empty to see, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In other words, the, the, the threat that the church in Colossae was facing is that the, the key th- the phrase there is according to Christ. The, the major threat they're having right now is losing sight of the importance of Jesus in every aspect of their life. And so what would it look like, oh, I I love Jesus, I worship Him, Um, I call Him King, but I'm going to live my own desires, my own wants, my own philosophies, my own worldview, or I'm going to take Jesus and I'm going to add different thoughts and sort of live from my own perspective. And it becomes a threat to the church in Colossae because we see what happens... When the gospel is filtered out. And so the major threat that they're facing right now is they think they need more than the gospel of the story of Jesus Christ. And they're trying to figure out what more to add to the gospel, where Paul is writing to them and saying, You don't need anything other than the gospel. You don't need anything other than Jesus, that is your focal point, that is your primacy, that is everything that you should be living for, and in fact, you need more of the gospel to be the people that you ought to be, and you need more of the gospel to know who God is and who you are in light of them. And so he gives this this warning of not being taken captive, in other words, not being distracted or distorted. Not being tempted to modify the gospel or to blend it with something else. And so, what are some things even in our culture today that distort or distract from the gospel message, from knowing Jesus and His His greatness? Pardon? Yeah, sometimes the news can even be a distraction, right? When we get so caught up with, with engaging what's going on in the world in the sense that, oh, we can lose hope of what God is doing. Why? Because the news often just talks about the horrible nature of things going on and we say, oh, is God truly in control? Is God truly all-powerful? Can, God, can I trust God to be working in the situation? Yeah. What are some other things that distract us from the gospel? Yeah, riches? Yeah, addictions? Yeah, saying, you know what? I'm going to fulfill my desires and needs, my emptiness through a bottle, through drugs, whatever it may be. I I have this emptiness or this loneliness or this hardship or this escapism, and I need these things to, to comfort me, to ease me, to give me peace, to give me satisfaction, right? Yeah, prosperity, health and wealth, right? That God promises me health and wealth in this life, and if I don't get it, then God must not be good, right? Yeah, worshiping the creation rather than the creator, yeah. Animism is the technical term for that. Yeah, sports is a major one. I mean, obviously, uh, moving to the Edmonton area, what's the biggest idol of our culture here? (laughs) <laughs> hockey, right? And in Vancouver, it was a little bad, but it's way different culture here. Like, yeah, I mean, as North Americans, well, I guess globally too, we can say sports is probably one of the biggest idols of our culture. It's absolutely insane. And, and that's what we do, though, as humans, even as Christ followers, we, we take something that's good, that God has given us for good, and we put it to a place that's elevated where it becomes ultimate. That's what an idol is. It's when we take something that's good and we make it ultimate. We say, oh, this is good, but it's going to give me my ultimate satisfaction and my joy and sense of meaning and purpose. And that's when it becomes an idol and it takes the place of God. And when it does that, it completely wipes out what God has for you in Jesus. Yeah. And so we, we could go on and on and on and on and on about What distracts us and what we create idols as the church and what culture pushes against us in wanting to focus on Jesus but uh, I think the, the, the question that we have to ask is are we willing and able by the power of the Spirit to be weeding those things out in our life? Are we paying attention to cultivating the garden so to say? Are we paying attention to what God has for us and I find it fascinating, Paul, Paul writes this letter to the church, and uh, this is the, the picture of the city of Colossae today. Is this as beautiful as Bouchard Gardens? No, not even close. And of course, this is just an image of the city It has nothing to do with sort of the church dying off in Colossae, so to say, but it's this sense of, you know what, here we see a picture of a city that was once beautiful. There was there was culture, there was arts, there was education, there was a fellowship, there was all these beautiful things that are going on in the city, and now what is it? It's just a big pile of rocks, <laughs> right? And weeds everywhere, yeah, weeds is a good metaphor for that too. And what's crazy about the city of Colossae too, this is one of the, the interesting um one of the cities in the New Testament that, that hasn't actually had an archaeological site on it yet, and so there's a lot of research that want to start digging up this place uh, to see what we have for archaeologically, but it's that's a different study. But so we asked this question then: if if the church in Colossae, if they were losing focus on the gospel and everything that had been planted, if they neglected tending to the garden, if they neglected Uh, pulling the weeds, and if they were led astray from a focus on Christ, then we just see it filled with weeds. No more beauty left. And so, we ask the question, and the implied question is, how do we as a church then, how do we as individuals even, how do we make sure that we stay in bloom, so to say? How do we make sure that the gospel is continually being cultivated among us? How do we make sure that the garden of the gospel is being tended? Well, this is what Paul begins to describe later on in chapter 1 here. And so, this is what Paul prays for them. And so, let's listen to his prayer once again. I think it's pretty key for us, but this is… This is what Paul says, if you want to keep flourishing in the gospel, these are some things that you need to pay attention to and practice. And this is sort of a foundation for the rest of the letter. And so, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, in other words, the day we heard that a church had been planted in Colossae, that you were flourishing, that things were going beautifully, that things were being transformed, life were being changed, the community was being changed, from the day we heard... We, not, we have not ceased to pray for you. And this is what they were praying. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so, let's process some of this together. And so, Paul is praying for them, and he's praying that they wouldn't be caught away with any counterfeit gospels. That he's praying that they wouldn't be caught in idolatry, uh, idolatry, and he's praying that they would be filled with the fullness of the blessings that they have in Christ, that they would understand it. And so he wants them to know God. He wants them to live in light of that knowledge. And so he sets almost these four foundational main statements. He sets this four practices that they need to prioritize in their life. And he sets it in a way that's almost quite confrontational. Because the question that he asks in this passage here, and the clarification that he brings is, so as to walk in a manner, what? What? Worthy of the Lord, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In in other words, he's saying that if you know who God is, this is who you should be. So walk worthy in the manner of the Lord. Now, that's a pretty intense thing to think about, isn't it? Because who here actually walks in a way that's worthy of the Lord? Anyone? I, I know I shouldn't have my hand down either. I should have it down, right? But, but it's this statement that's, that's reminding the church, this is who you're supposed to be. This is who you're called to be. And you know what? You won't be able to walk in a manner worthy of Lord in your own power, in your own strength, You need to be, as Paul says over and over again in this book, which is a massive theme, you need to be in, guess who? In Christ. Why? Because in Christ, you have your righteousness. In Christ, you are restored in your relationship to God. In Christ, you are living as an image bearer, restored to the Father, restored to one another for the purposes of God's will. And so in Christ, we walk worthy of God. And so here's the questions, and here's how we know if we're in Christ. Here's how we know if the garden of the gospel is being cultivated among us. Here's how we know if weeds might be sprouting up in our lives as individuals in the church. He says, first of all, what do you need to have? He says, practice number one, he says, you, you need to see a fruitful life. You need to see a fruitful life. See, when it comes to knowing and following God, we, we often tend to overthink the who, the where, and the how rather than just simply what of God's will. And this is saying, what is God calling me to? Who is God calling me to be? And and a fruitful life, first of all, begins with the fruits of the Spirit. And so the fruits of the Spirit evident in the life of the church is what? Begins with love, because that covers everything. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering, mercy, Right, All these things are supposed to be cultivated in our life to be a fruitful follower of Jesus, where character is transformed. And as our character is transformed, what it does then is it also begins to transform our relationships with the people around us. And so now fruitful lives becomes the way that people around us feel loved and cared for and the compassion that they get to experience. That's why Paul says, be fruitful in every good work. So because of who you are, it transforms what you do, which brings blessing to other people. So a fruitful life. The next thing he said is is a growing mind. He says, our knowledge should be increased of God. We should always be growing in our knowledge and our comprehension of who God is, what He has done, and who we are called to be in light of Him. And this is one of the beautiful things about Christianity to me. Um, I had a fascinating conversation recently with a friend of mine who's Uh, ex-Mormon, and he brought up something that's fascinating, which is also aligned with Islam as well, a lot of the Islamic and Muslim friends I have, where in those worldviews, there is no space to doubt in other words, if you are a Mormon, you, there's no space for you to ask questions. There's no space for you to push back. If you, if you don't believe something as a Mormon, they'll basically say, oh, go pray about it and come back to us when you've changed your mind, right? There's no room for conversation. There's no room for disagreement. There's no room for reading anything other than your established worldview. And it's the exact same in Islam as well. And, I mean, we saw that horrifically in the story of Iran this past week, didn't we? The young woman in the hijab. There's no room. There's no space for disagreement. There's no room. But the beautiful thing about Christianity, and the beautiful thing that Paul is encouraging the church to do is saying, no, you need to be pursuing truth. You need to be establishing a growing mind. Don't just get stuck in your set beliefs and you're stuck in your set concepts. No, be seeking what is true. And obviously that the foundation for that is the Scripture because that's where we believe that God has revealed Himself to us. But it's pursuing how do we know God without ever asking and questioning and doubting, right? That's the way forward to know God. And God is big big enough for us to wrestle with Him and to doubt and go through seasons of questioning and have questions that we we don't know the answer to but want to discover. Um, Paul is encouraging the church to be a person of faith is to grow in knowledge. In other words, there's an intellectual aspect that's going on here. We can assume so easily who God is and never question it, only to realize that what we thought was so wrong. Has anyone had that in their relationship and conversation with God where you assume God was one way and then quickly discovered wait, that concept of God is now completely shattered and eradicated? Right? It should be happening consistently on our journey of following Jesus. Because we all have misconceptions. We all have wrong perceptions of who God is. That's why we need, again, the gospel more and more and more. Why? Because the gospel, knowing Jesus, knowing His character, corrects those things. Then Paul says, here's another fruit. Here's another reality that should be coming out of a relationship of being in Christ. He says, a resilient and a patient life. He he says the church, he prays that they would be strengthened with power according to His glorious might for endurance and patience. Now who's a patient person naturally here? See, see, none of us, what's fascinating is none of us are very patient at all in our own individual lives but I think when we stretch that out to the story of God and the story of history and what's been happening, um, that should almost create an creating us more of an impatience, right? When we read about Jesus coming as King to restore and reconcile and redeem, and yet here we are 2,000 years later and we say, God, why isn't the fullness of the kingdom here yet? Why hasn't all things been made new yet? Why haven't you come to eradicate evil and injustice once for all? Why do we still have to go through the sufferings of this present age, right? Anyone else struggle with those questions? Right, but I mean, there's there's something in the Bible Leviticus, Leviticus that reminds us too. What what is what is the reason for God's long suffering? What is the reason for God's patience? Does anyone know? Pardon? So yeah, God longs for more to be saved. Right. He's very patient. He's patient with us as individuals. He's patient with us as humans. Because God longs for people to come to repentance. And He is patient with them. And so if God is patient with us, then we have to realize, oh wait, life goes according to God's time. Life goes according to God's plan. And if there's a hope that's set before us, which it was for the church in Colossae, then we can become resilient. We can endure all things because we know how the story ends. That's the beautiful part of being in Christ and knowing the gospel. Then the fourth major thing that Paul brings up to cultivate a life in Christ is he says, a life of thanksgiving. A life of thanksgiving. And this is really a major theme in the book of Colossians. And this is why I called the sermon series for us Thanksgiving. And then did anyone see the other little word under there? Thanksgiving and thanks living. And the purpose of that is because a life of thanksgiving is looking at God and who He is and His characteristics and thanking God for who He is and celebrating for who He is, also looking to what God has done and what God is doing and celebrating who God is and what He's doing and then realizing that an act of thanksgiving is transformative. And thanksgiving should always lead to thanksgiving living. And what's fascinating, as we walk through Colossians together, we're going to realize that when whatever Paul brings up this aspect of thanksgiving, and he's already done it twice already in even our passage this morning, whenever he brings up this concept of thanksgiving, there's this implication that this is how you live out of it now. If this is what you're thankful for, this should transform you so that people can be thankful for that in your life, Right? So if you're thanks, if you're thankful that God is generous, then people should be thanking you that you are generous, right? If you are thankful that God is loving, then you should become a loving person so that people are thankful that you are loving. If you are, if you realize that God is merciful and He has shown you mercy, you should become a person of mercy, right? So Paul really roots this aspect and practice of Thanksgiving to be transformative in our life. And here's, here's the wild thing. Um, um, Tim Keller says this. He says, if you are indifferent to someone, then their happiness is at the expense of your happiness. In other words, we call this jealousy at times, don't we? And so if we're indifferent to someone, if we don't really care about them, but they're having a great time and a great life, what do we often feel? We feel jealous or we want that or we covet that, right? But then he goes on to say, but he says, but if you are in love with somebody, their happiness is your happiness. In other words, when you're in love with someone, when I'm in love with my spouse, when I'm in love with my kids, and they are happy, and they are enjoying life, and they are satisfied, does that not transform me as well? I get to experience that joy and satisfaction because that relationship is love. And, and Paul is saying if if we love Jesus, if we love God, if that's the relationship we have, then everything that, that God has done and Jesus has done and everything that they are, the very source of joy and peace and satisfaction and meaning and purpose guess what? Because of who they are, we get to experience that because we're in a loving relationship with them. Does that make sense? So, the more we know God and know His joy, the more we get to experience it. And and that's the foundation of thanksgiving. That's the beauty of thanksgiving. And so, we're going to be talking a lot more about that throughout the the weeks ahead. So I'll jump two more to that. But this is what Paul is saying. He's saying if you want to be a church and if you want to be a people who allow the gospel to transform and grow amongst you, and if you want to be a people who when people say, oh, that's a beautiful community, he says this is a foundation. This is the foundation, a fruitful life, a growing mind, a resilient and patient life, In a life of thanksgiving. And here's the hope that is set before us that God has done to make this happen. Paul closes this section of thanksgiving by saying, for He has delivered us from the domain of what? From the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Who is that? Jesus Christ. In whom... There's another in Christ statement, again, we're going to see that so often, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, right? And so, if we look at the story of history and what God has done, I mean, the the purpose of God creating us was to be in a relationship with us as humans, And God longed for us to be in His presence so that we can enjoy this beautiful relationship with God. And yet we know what has broken that relationship sin, our rebellion as humans, our rejection of a relationship with God, wanting to do life in our own way. And so, if we choose to do life in our own way, it's exactly what Monica actually brought up this morning. How do we function? When we're our own gods and serve our own purposes, who do we live for? We live for ourselves. And when people are selfish, that means they put their needs ahead of everyone else's. So if you're selfish, if you're only focused on self, if you worship yourself, you're not going to be generous. You're not going to love others. You're not going to be merciful. You're not going to forgive. You're not going to sacrifice. You see how it plays out in reality? And so here's the beautiful thing that God has done for us. He says, I have rescued you from that. I have rescued you from yourself. I have rescued you from your sin. I have rescued you from your selfishness. I have brought you from the domain of darkness, which is where evil and injustice flourishes in this world because of all those things we just mentioned. And he says, I have brought you into the kingdom of Christ, who has redeemed us, a kingdom of generosity and love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. It's beautiful. And so, what, what this is doing as well, it's, it's this backdrop to the story. When, when we see the statement of deliverance and rescue and redemption, there's an Old Testament story with that language that should be up in our minds right now, and that's the story of what? Any guesses? I bring it up a lot. The new, does that frame it? Exo, the new exa. I was really over. I was hoping you guys would get it. Such a cute, new exodus. Okay? Is it clicking now? The new exodus. Again, what was the story of the Exodus in the the Old Testament? You you saw people enslaved by Pharaoh. You saw evil and injustice. You you saw the sense of a, a people who were enslaved for the pride and selfishness of a harmful king. And yet what happened in the Exodus story is that God delivered them and He rescued them out of slavery and He established them as a people, as a family actually. Again, the first time we see God referred to His Father in the Old Testament comes out of the Exodus story where God rescues them as slaves to freedom. God rescues them as slaves now to sonship, to family, and restores them as a people of God. And so, these, these history of, of God working should remind us that we are caught up as the church as well in this beautiful redemptive story of what God is doing. We, again, as children of the King, of King Jesus, we are, we are going through an exodus like Israel's, aren't we? We are going through an exodus on an escalated scale, so to say. Uh, a wild scale that's beginning spiritually in this age, And comes into full reality physically in the new heavens and the new earth. What we call the fruition of the kingdom of God. The fullness of what God is doing throughout history. And so this backstory then gives us this pattern that we're supposed to be living out of. It's the story that we're supposed to be living out of. Where the thoughts and the behaviors of God through the past should now become our thoughts and behaviors as the people of the present. And God does this by bringing us into His kingdom. And this is what it means then, as we we looked at that passage, to walk in a way that is worthy of the King. It's saying, walking in a way worthy of the King is saying, this is how God has been working throughout history. This is the path that He set before. We call it the kingdom of God. There's a lot to be said about it, but that's the language, the kingdom of God. And now we, as followers of Jesus, we walk that way as well we walk that path of justice and love and mercy and forgiveness of redemption and restoration. That's what it means to be the people of God. And so my question then for us as we, we close our time together is, is really pondering this question. Pondering the question, okay, if we view ourselves then as a garden now, as a local church, if, if we are a beautiful Bouchard garden, so to say, What are we going to be doing to make sure that weeds don't come in? What are we going to be doing to cultivate what we're called to? And first of all, it begins with being in who? In Christ. Restored in relationship with Him. Why? Because we can't just live lives of morality thinking we can be good people unless we have a transformed and changed heart. And God is the only one who is able to change and transform us. And so we need to be in Christ. And then we need to live out the four implications that Paul talks about, right? And what are the four again? I'm not going to bring it up, see if we memorize it. Uh, Fruitful life, right? What kind of mind? Yeah. yeah, resilience, patience. What was the fourth one? The life yeah, life of thanksgiving, right? Good job. I didn't even have to put it up for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and so think about that, though. I mean, those are pretty key markers to know that if you're in Christ. They're key markers to know okay, I need to be in the gospel. I need to be in the gospel. I need to be growing. I need to be growing. I'm lacking in these things. I I don't have the fruits of the Spirit in my life. Uh, I I don't have a mind that asks existential questions or cares about who God is. Uh, I'm not a patient person. I'm not a resilient person. I get angry and frustrated. I'm not a thankful person. I criticize and complain. If that's patterns that you see in your life, then you've got to come back to Jesus and start asking the question, who are you and who am I called to be in you? That's the path of following Jesus that we exist and live for. And so let me, let me pray to that extent as the team comes up. Gracious God, we come before you, and we do so in thanksgiving, in thanksgiving because you are a God who has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, which is a kingdom of selfishness, a kingdom of pride, a kingdom of hate, a kingdom of envy, a kingdom of jealousy, a kingdom of evil, a kingdom of injustice. Lord, you have rescued us from that. You have rescued us from ourselves so that we could be part of your kingdom of light, so that we could be a people who are loving and generosity, have generosity and show mercy and welcome the stranger and seek peace, pursue justice, Sacrifice for others. Pursue you intellectually with our minds. All these things which bring about beautiful fruit. And so Lord, we thank you that by your spirit you have given us that power because we know we could not do it on our own. We are so prone to self-worship and yet you save us from that, you deliver us from that, you rescue us from that. We thank you for doing that, God, and we pray that as we thank you for doing those things, that we would have lives transformed by it. You have given us the power now in your spirit to live that way. May we walk in it. May we see the kind of God you are and what you have been doing throughout history and let our story align with your story. Walking towards a new heavens and a new earth where all things will be made right once again, where the kingdom of darkness, of evil and injustice will be eradicated and we will live in the presence of our King, a good King, a gracious King, a great King. And we will bow down and worship because you are worthy and we pray that our lives would be worthy of who you are and what you have done. We thank you, gracious God. Amen. Amen.